We are excited to be back semi, uh, it looks a little different here at East Lake today. We got uh, a little bit of a crowd and we've got some kids areas that are open. We're super excited about that. And uh, it's just, it's fun. So if you brought your kids or you're back with your kids, we're, we're super excited. I'm excited to be back. I took a week off last week and had a chance to uh, go on a, an annual trip, an annual pilgrimage to uh, Las Vegas with my uh, couple of college buddies. And we watch a bunch of college basketball and bet on a bunch of college basketball and have a great time with that. Uh, and I watched from my hotel room via the app. Uh, I watched Lauren speak last week, and it was by far the most profitable hour of the of, of the few days that I was there. Um, and by profitable, I mean uh, both in terms of content and application to my life, but also um, I didn't lose money during that time for that whole hour, and that was really really nice. So uh, it's good. Thank you, Lauren, for continuing our series. We're on part three of a four part series. We're going to conclude it next week on Easter Sunday. Um, but it's uh, a series called Exodus: Making Sense of Easter. And the idea uh, being that uh, the early church uh, tried to make sense of what the Easter story kind of talked about, and when they did so, they viewed it very much through the lens of what took place in Exodus. There's a story uh, in, Gen- in the book of Exodus, an entire book dedicated to it, about an Exodus out of Egypt, a God who came through on his promises to have a specific people group uh, show up and, and be uh, go, come out of slavery in, in, in Egypt and into a promised land. And when people, when the early church tried to reflect on what do we know about Jesus's death, uh, they used that story as, as like a paradigm to kind of shape this sort of thing. In the same way uh, that if you've ever done a puzzle and you throw the pieces out on, on the table and then you set the box in the corner and you're like, all right, I'm gonna look at that picture as I do this. And this, that's going to help make sense of what I've got going on here and why I have a blue piece and a green piece and a yellow piece and whatever. And I'm trying to kind of piece the puzzles together. And the picture doesn't always line up exactly. And we'll talk about how that this is a little bit different than, than an Exodus thing. But for them, they said, and as, as we're trying to make sense of, of Jesus' death and resurrection, they asked the same question that a lot of us ask. Next week, we're going to show up and we're going to celebrate on Easter, the, the, the death of a person who died 2,000 years ago. And what does that have to do for, with me for anything? Like, what, what, is, what does that mean for me? This is a, that's a long time ago. I'm not Jewish. Uh, I didn't even, I, I, these stories sound almost fictional for some of you, you know, maybe reading this or whatever, or talk, talking through some of this. Uh, and it's a, it's a difficult thing. And so it's, it's a critical piece. And it's interesting because I've said this before, the gospel stories are four different accounts, basically memoirs in the same way that we think about it, uh, memoirs of the life and the teaching of Jesus written from people who are trying to make sense of the Jesus story. And they're written 30, 40, 50 years after the fact because probably for many of them, they remember Jesus saying, I'm going away and I'm preparing a place. I'm going to come back and get you. And they probably thought that that meant like next Thursday, right? And so if you know you're going somewhere next Thursday, why would I write a story about this? And then next Thursday comes and goes, and, it's, and then it gets pushed back a year and a month and whatever. And all of a sudden, you realize, um, I might, uh, this might not be on the timeline that I thought. And so I probably need to write some of these things down before I die. I don't want to let this story die. Or there's a lot of disinformation out there, and I want to give my side of the story because I talked to Peter. Mark says, I talked to Peter, and Peter told me this version about what Jesus says. Or Luke says, I did research. I'm a doctor. I like this kind of stuff. I researched and wanted to provide an orderly account of what Jesus' story looked like. Or John would say, let me write my version of the story, and he writes his last. 
saying, I was one of his inner disciples. In fact, he had, he, had like a, he had a group of disciples, and then he had 12, and then inside that 12, he even had three, and I was one of those three, and I saw and had some conversations with Jesus that nobody else had. So let me give you my version of the story. And in all four gospel accounts, there's a, uh, a slowing down during the last week of Jesus' life, from the moment he enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which is what we celebrate today, uh, through the Last Supper and the Passover meal that they shared together, his death and his burial and his resurrection. Uh, this is a, a busy, busy week in the life of the church, and it's one of the slowest parts of the stories when you read through a, kind of all four gospel accounts. They're talk- early on, they'll be like, Jesus went here, and he did this, and he healed this, and he said this, and he taught this. And then right here, uh, it slows down. It's like three or four chapters for like one week of his life. It's kind of like when you're doing a drive, everybody in traffic drive slows down when there's an accident on the side of the road because you're like, what's everybody doing? Well, everybody's kind of gooseneckin' looking at what, who, what happened and what, what's going on with this. That's what's taking place in these gospel narratives. And they're try, they tried to make sense or their ability to kind of write this out is them going, here's what we think happened or here's what we think is important in relation to his death and, and what it means uh, for us. Um, and so... Uh, that's uh, that's the, 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 the idea behind this series and what we're going with. And we're realizing um, that there, in your Bible, there's basically two major sections in Old Testament and New Testament. And inside of each of those different two testaments is what's called a master narrative or a master story. And a master story is essentially this. Of all of the possible ways of linking together and accounting for the events that make up our experience, which one offers us the fullest description and the most adequate explanation of and for our lives? Which version of the story, and this is true when it comes to your decision on who you vote for and how you vote in politics. This is in, in, in terms of um, how you choose your, your potential mate someday. Uh, this is uh, how you choose who you're going to vote for for college basketball. This is going to be, there's so many things about this just feels like it makes the most sense. It has the best explanatory value for me about who I am and what I exist for. So for, for, uh, for a lot of Jewish people, in their Old Testament scripture, they wouldn't call it the Old Testament. They would call it the Tanakh or the Hebrew scriptures. They would say the master story for us is this idea of an exodus out of Egypt and into a promised land that we feel like we've been chosen uniquely uh, in, in this way. And then in the New Testament, the, the master narrative changes. It's related to that. It looks like that, but it's a little bit different. This master narrative in the New Testament is there's a guy who came and his name was Jesus and he taught a certain way of doing things. And his teaching is validated by his death, and, and, and his death is some sort of a, a preservation of, 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 uh, of sin or preservation of death for us. His death means something for us in the same way that the, the, the lamb's death and the blood on the window for the Passover thing meant something for them. This is what it means for us. There's two distinct uh, master narrative stories at play in here, and they inform each other, and they look quite a bit alike in certain places, as we'll see today, but there is a few differences at the very end that I, I think are interested to talk about. So that's the point of the series. That's why we're here, and that's what we're studying. So um, in every good story, there's always a good protagonist. Every good story has a good protagonist. A pra- protagonist is the one that you root for. Uh, it's the character in the story that it doesn't take you long to realize the author is trying to get you to like this person. Uh, it's the one where even though I don't have a dog in the fight, I kind of lean towards this, and I like this person. So uh, in, in the story of, uh, you know, like Harry Potter, his parents, the story of his parents make you really like Harry Potter at first, being like, oh, I feel bad he lost his parents, right? Frodo Baggins is like this innocent weirdo, whatever. I, I like him. He's got a ring. He's kind of, you know, frumpy. He's got big feet, and, you know, he's tiny. I can identify with that. I'm in that way. Let's do it. Um, uh, we, we look at uh, Baby Yoda. He's got the eyes, right? There's something about, and the show isn't even named Baby Yoda, and, we just, and it's not, his name's not even Baby Yoda. 
Yoda, it was just like, he's the protagonist of the story. He's the one we care about, right? Um, in the Jesus story, um, we are taught early on that uh, Jesus, Mary and Joseph take their son to Jerusalem to uh, do the annual pilgrimage and to uh, dedicate the child and all, the, all these types of things, and they end up leaving him behind. And they find him, it says days later. They, they were traveling with family and they thought that other people had him. And, and then they find out, gosh, we just left our kid in, in the big city. So they go back into the big city and they find him and he's entertaining all of these religious elite people. And they're like, this, this kid is different. There's something is unique about this kid. And it's the, it's the author's way of going, this is going to be a story about him. You're going to like this person. He is the protagonist in this story. This is a, a big deal uh, in this way. And so uh, we, uh, we find then, we know the protagonist in the, the New Testament, the New Covenant story. We're going to spend a little bit of time uh, comparing this with the, the protagonist in the Old Testament version uh, of this, in the master narrative for the Israelite people through the person of Moses. A name that we've heard before, we're probably familiar with his story even as we go through. We're going to talk about the beginning part of his story, uh, where he came from, and, uh, and see how the early church was going. I see Jesus in this, or I see... I see Moses and Jesus is probably what they would begin to say. So Exodus chapter 2, if you uh, have your Bible with you or if you want to follow along, these we're going to fly through a bunch of verses. Um, they're going to be on the note sheet, so if you're watching this online, you can scroll to the bottom and see through all of this, or I'll try and talk through them as clearly as possible. Now, a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, right? Jacob had 12 sons. Each of the 12 sons serves as a tribe. Uh, and so uh, this is one of the sons and one of their ancestors. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. Now, there's some backstory here. that you, If you grew up in church, you know this story. But uh, essentially, the Israelites uh, you know, were, were uh, started with Abraham. It was just one guy called by God. And then all of a sudden, you're going to have all these kind of descendants. And it's going to be a num- as numerous as the stars in the sky. By the time of his death, he has one son. Uh, his name is Isaac, and that's not, that's not nearly as, that's like a cloudy night. I can see one star, right? So that's not that great of a follow through. But he's got one son, and then Isaac has a son named Jacob, and then Jacob has 12. In the midst of having those 12, uh, one of them is his favorite. There's backstory for that. Uh, the other brothers don't like that dad has favorites. They sell him into slavery. He, find, he makes his way to Egypt, becomes an interpreter of dreams, gets a, a job working for the king of that era or the pharaoh of that era. And uh, then uh, it says that there's a great famine in the land. Because of Joseph's wisdom, Egypt is well prepared for it. Meanwhile, the outside countries are not. The the brothers are then forced to come basically begging on their knees for food in order to survive. And lo and behold, it's their brother who they sold to slavery, who's now in charge. There's a great drama. It's a really good, it'd make a really good miniseries on HBO. But anyways, um, it happens. Uh, they find themselves in Egypt. They begin to, though, uh, the story goes that Joseph dies, the Pharaoh who knew Joseph dies, and they fall out of favor. And yet this people group, this ethnically different racial group, um, begins to kind of grow and grow at a greater rate than perhaps the natives uh, of that area. And so there becomes this, this animosity between this us and them. Um, we, we don't like them. They look different than us. They talk different like, than us. They have different traditions than us. They, they dress differently. Um, and they're succeeding, and we're not. And whenever that takes place within these two very visible things, a lot of time oppression ensues, and, and it does in this area. And so um, the solution to the control, the population of this time is very ruthless. Uh, the, fair, the Pharaoh decides that we're going to kill any Hebrew-born sons. We'll leave the girls fine, but... Um, in order to control population, we, we've done the math. Um, you need one of each, and so let's kill the boys. 
and uh, and then then we'll be able to kind of you know set ourselves up for success or stay in control and, and whatever. So this mom has this son. She sees that he's fine and realizes I have to hide him for the next three months. Now it's interesting because. This story for the Hebrew people is a kind of a critical story. This is them kind of overcoming both slavery and this, this raw deal. In the New Testament, when Jesus is born, when Matthew writes about the, the birth story of Jesus, which only Matthew and Luke write about a birth version of Jesus, Mark and John don't seem to be interested in, in where he came from in the early years. But when Matthew begins to write it, he writes about a similar sort of thing. Instead of a Pharaoh this time, it's King Herod. But he's still going after the, the boys. He, he has this edict in the land of, um, you know, in the, we're going to kill all the, the, the Jewish boys at two and under because I'm afraid of, again, he's a threat to authority. He's a threat to the establishment. Moses was seen as a threat to the establishment, not individually, but his people group, his personhood or whatever. And in the same way, Jesus, Matthew writes Jesus in as being a threat to the establishment. King Herod doesn't want anybody to usurp his power so we're going to kill all the babies at this point, too. Immediately, what we see is the New Testament gospel writers trying to liken Jesus to this Moses. Moses had to overcome this genocidal hit on him, right? This take that was going to be out there. Jesus had to do something similar. To admit, to admit, this is just like a small piece, but to, to try and identify that, that, that people in power and in, in, in whatever were nervous because of a threat to the establishment, and they tried to do whatever they could to kind of stop that, and there's an overcoming of this uh, taking place. But this is verse three. But when she could not hide him any longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. In her attempt to save her child's life, where does she put him? But in what seems to be the most life-threatening place of all. Listen, you would never, you would never, because uh, you're humane, put your three-week-old or three-month-old in a basket even on the Columbia River. And there are no 20-foot crocodiles in the Columbia River. I've checked. You know what I mean? Um, and yet in the Nile River, this was, this, was a, a, this was a very, very dangerous spot. If you and I today went on a canoe ride and tipped over in the Nile, uh, I'm not worried about drowning. I'm worried about getting eaten. That's the difference. Or catching something, right? So there's, there's, there's massive dangers involved in this. And she took a valuation of that feels like a safer space than me hanging on to my child, which is crazy. And for them, by the way, water always represented chaos. There's like this biblical metaphor between water representing chaos, water representing dangerous things. Like this is, this is when, when the creation story kind of takes place in Genesis, the spirit of God hovered over the waters of chaos, this idea of order coming into chaos and how do we meet. Um, they, they would say that, that, that water was the, was the place, the unknowns, that we don't know what happens out there. It still kind of feels like that, right? I mean, imagine not having the mapping system and not having Google and standing on the edge of the Pacific Ocean and watching the chaos of the waves coming in. There's no way you'd be like, that feels safe and where I'm on you know, firm ground. That, that These are not the same. That feels way more dangerous. And so that's absolutely true for them. And for them, it always, it always represented we need something different. So when, when, eight, when, uh, when Noah gets all of these animals in this story, this creation story of making sense of where we came from for them, an origin story, gathers them all in this ark or this, really the word there is not ark. It's, it's like this treasure chest or box or rudderless box with no sail, no steering wheel, and no rudder, wadding, riding out the, uh, the, uh, the waters of destruction, utterly dependent on providence alone, right? 
So humanity survives on this floating box in this chaotic river uh, with nothing but God to provide. And in the same story then, right? This woman, this Levite woman has this child, sticks her child, her humanity in this box on the river to kind of let providence kind of take its way. It's very, it's very intertwined. It's very great in that way. Verse four, the story continues with, with Moses. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies. Immediately, she knows just by looking at the skin tone of the kid or, or some sort of facial structure or whatever, she said, this is different than what we're used to. She said, then the sister asked the Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Now, I don't know how much of a writer you are or whatever, but it's easy to see where this story is headed. It's easy to see this is a really good story. This makes for a great plot line of a movie. I'm afraid for my child. I put him in the water. And then the sister comes and says, I know somebody who will take care of this child for you as a favor for you, right? It happens to be the child's mom, of course. And this is, this is fantastic. This is great. Uh, then the story continues. Um, yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So not only is she getting to raise her own child in the midst of this chaotic circumstances, but and she does it under the safety of Pharaoh's daughter. If anybody ever said anything, don't worry, this is fair. You know, Pharaoh's daughter said this was okay. And I'm getting paid to do this. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. This is a story of a child who survives unique circumstances as a threat to authority, who comes with no expectations, comes from absolutely nothing. This is a, what we would call a reversal of expectations. We expect people to come from like pedi- some certain pedigree to kind of make these decisions. This guy comes from absolutely nothing. In most stories, by the way, in most storylines, a protagonist is born into a ruling family, perhaps goes and lives amongst the commoners and then realizes one day, hey, wait a second, I'm supposed to be a princess. How many stupid Disney movies have been this woman who goes like, hey, wait a second, did you know that your aunt is the queen of blah, blah, blah? And I'm like, well, I'm a princess, right? And we're like, oh, this is a great story for us. Somebody who comes from nothing and is something. This is, this is now somebody who comes from absolutely nothing, is brought into this home, but realizes early on, by the way, does not belong here. Verse 11, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were watching. And he watched them hard at their labor. At some point, and we don't know where the transition occurs, it says he went out and saw where his own people were. This is a child who from a very young age, even though he was raised by his Hebrew mother for a certain period of time, at the point of kind of remembrance or, or at the point of maturity where he, he's, he, he's then adopted into Pharaoh's family. He has all the rights and privileges that come with this. Probably the education, the dress. As we're going to see later, he's going to look like an Egyptian. He's going to have a certain sort of like mixed look, mixed feel. Like his, his identity is in crisis. He's not sure kind of exactly where he's from. And yet he recognizes, I do have my own people. I'm, I'm here. I'm in the privileged class. But, I, but I, there's a common association with, with some, somebody else, something outside of this. He watched them at their hard labor. He saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his own people, again, twice in in two occasions, his own people, looking this way and that and seeing nobody, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. He saw something taking place and injustice was being done to this this person who he identified with and something 
uh, he did something about it. Now, let's set aside the ethical you know, question of, is it, was it right for him to murder as a result of that? That's not for this time or, or place. But what's going on here is an emergence in his mindset of who I belong to and who are my people and who are not my people. Then the story continues. The next day, verse 13, he went out and he saw two Hebrews fighting this time. He asked the one in the wrong, why are you hitting your fellow Hebrew? The man said, who made you ruler and judge over us? Now, it's interesting because in this scenario, what he's asking is what gives you the right or the authority to determine one who is in the right and is in the wrong? Why are you doing this to this person? He's not doing it out of like a sense of pity or I'm, I'm, I, don't think, I don't think he's doing it out of a sense of I feel bad for the person being beaten or whatever. I think he's doing it about, out of I have a... I have a, um, there's something in me that cries out for justice and I'm willing to step over bound, like common boundary lines of expectations in order to seek out justice. He's a person who is obsessed and concerned with justice. And he sees this and he says, why are you doing this to the one that is in the wrong? Who, you know, who are you to be judge and jury over us? Are you thinking of killing me as you killed the Egyptian? So then this story becomes, it's starting to open up a little bit and he's realizing I'm in trouble now. Then Moses was afraid and thought, what, did I, what I did must have become known. When Pharaoh heard of this, he tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in Midian where he sat down by a well. He went to a place that's kind of out of, out of bounds, out of nowhere. He went to the unknown. He went so far out of it, he doesn't belong in either group. I don't belong with the Hebrews. I don't belong with the Egyptians. I'm going to go to a place called Midian because I'm just, I'm all, oh, I'm, I'm all out of places to go. And this is, this is an important thing. As Jesus is being looked at from this New Testament church and trying to make sense of what do we make sense of Jesus, and they liken him to Moses, for sure he's got this reversal of expectations. Like we, we didn't, we're not sure where he came from. He doesn't really belong to us. He doesn't really belong to anybody. Um, we, we look at it and, and we say, what good can come from Nazareth? Um, you, you keep talking about Jesus as this Messiah, but like we know his dad. And isn't this uh, Joseph's son who was a carpenter with him? Like for sure, this idea of he came from nothing is, is, is an important piece. Um, we, we see this, uh, this big idea that he's a threat to the establishment. For sure, Jesus was perceived as that. Similar to Moses, Jesus is like that. They're trying to make sense of this. And then this last way, uh, this concern for justice, this concern for other people that, that both here and in the previous case involving the Egyptian taskmaster, Moses is moved not because he feels sorry for the Israelites. Both, both were a commitment to setting things right. I just want to do the right thing regardless of the personal cost for me, regardless of the personal cost uh, for me. <clears throat> then uh, it says this, verse 16, now priests of Midian had seven daughters and they came to draw water and fill the troughs to water their father's flock. Some shepherds came along and drove them away, but Moses got up and came to their rescue and he watered their flock. When the girls returned to Ruel, their father, he asked them, what have you, what have you returned so early to? They answered, an Egyptian rescued us from the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. Here's, here's what's going on. He, he, he goes and he's in this unknown land and these, these women show up and, and he begins to do these things to help them, even though they're complete and utter strangers. They look nothing like him. They, they're neither Hebrew nor Egyptian. They're, they're, they're this kind of different thing. And he still is concerned with this idea of justice. And the Hebrew words that are used here, this, this idea of he, he was a savior to us, he rescued us. They're laden with this sort of meaning. He's portrayed as somebody whose acts are thoroughly and intrinsically connected to deliverance. And he was willing to do this. 
out of a conviction for justice, regardless of personal cost. Listen, as the, as the early church is trying to make sense of Jesus, and they're saying he's like Moses, what does it mean that he's like Moses? He was utterly concerned with deliverance and justice and setting things right, regardless of personal cost. The decisions that he made, the things that he did, he's like that. He's like a new and better Moses is basically their way of looking at this. The story continues, verse 20, and where is he? This father asked his daughter, why did you leave him? Invite him to have something to eat with us. Moses agreed to stay with the man who gave him uh, his daughter Zipporah to Moses in marriage. Zipporah gave birth to a son. Moses named him Gershom saying, I have become a foreigner in a foreign land. I've got really no home to be able to belong to. People would name their children after like this current state of being that I'm in or where I feel like I'm at in terms of relationship with God. In this moment, he says, I feel like I'm a foreigner in a foreign land. His actions here reveal him to be a man whose care and concern for others isn't limited even to his own people. He's a man whose regard for others extends even to those who are most distinctly other, strangers in his own world. He is perceived as just the kind of man that God needs to realize his original plan of creation, a story that extends to the whole world. So why in the world wouldn't the early church begin to draw comparisons between Jesus and what we have in Jesus and the type of person that Moses was? A threat to the establishment, somebody who comes from absolutely nothing, nothing that you would expect him to be. And then this idea that he's ultimately concerned for justice. Now, that's where these things line up. This is where it kind of takes a little bit of a twist. And I, I mentioned that the picture on the box doesn't always match the picture in the puzzle. During that long period, verse 23, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and they cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham. And in week one of the series, I said remembering in, these, in this kind of context is different than us saying, you know, on Mother's Day, hey, don't forget your mom on Mother's Day. And when your dad says that to you, don't forget mom on Mother's Day, he's not saying don't forget that you have a mom that exists. He's trying to say don't forget to like do something for your mom. There's an active thing in this, right? This is him saying I actively remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and is concerned about them. For the Jewish people, these few lines right here represent the critical turning point of the story where God actively enters into the story for the first time, visibly, physically, to set in motion the chain of events that will eventually lead to these people's deliverance. Remember, God had this, in the story of Abraham, as Abraham kind of told it, there was a voice that called me outside and said, look at the stars, I'm gonna make you into this mighty nation, make this covenant with you, and we're gonna do this. But then there's really ultimately silence for a long period of time. God is, if he's at work, it's behind the scenes, and it's not overt, and it's not visible. And then they go into slavery for 400 years, and they have these stories of kind of where we come from and these origin stories that show up, and there was an ark involved, and there was this and that, and a creation narrative, and all of these things that kind of match a little bit some of the creation narratives about some of the surrounding pagan religions as they're trying to make sense of this thing. And they go, who are we really? Who are we really? We keep saying we're Jewish people. What does that mean? What is this? Who, what are we doing here? What's the point of all of this? And for 400 years, we've been slaves. Is this what it means to be a chosen nation? This is what we've been chosen for? Lucky for us. This is like getting a letter in the mail. Lucky for you. You're getting audited. You know, you're like, that's not great. I, I don't, can I not be chosen? I don't want to be selected. 
I don't want to be lucky in that way. You're one of, you know, only 10,000 people that get out of it every year. Well, that sucks. Thank you. You know, how about I pass that along to somebody else? In this way, they're going, what does this even mean? This doesn't do anything for me. And in this way, then, this is where the story shifts for them. This is why this became such a master story for them. God began to show up. God showed up in Moses uh, with these plagues. He, he showed up with this, um, with, with, with uh, anytime he met with the Pharaoh, right? And he would say, um, we're going to perform these, uh, you let my people go. No, I'm not going to let your, my, your people go. I'm not going to let you go. We need you for work. We need you for free labor. Do it. The God who is greater than all of your other gods, you know, combined or whatever, is, is telling you to do this. And who, who, who's this God? What are you talking about? And every single plague, every time he does this, it's representative of a God who has greater strength than the current God of the Pharaoh. So when locusts come in, it's, it's, you have this God of the locusts, right? And your God can't compete with this. And your God of the Nile River, well, I'm going to turn the whole Nile River, river red, right? Uh, the, the God of uh, uh, flies or, or whatever. It's always, you have your God. Here's your God. Here's what you say is powerful. And we're going to show you a plague. I'm going to show you a plague of a God who's more powerful than this. It's always, it was this constant power dynamic of who's greater, and at one point, it would be Moses writing the story of the Exodus, people going, listen, here's how weak your power is, Pharaoh. You think you're so strong and powerful. Your gods are weak. And by the way, your daughter doesn't even listen to the rules. Your daughter is down by the river raising a Hebrew child that you said shouldn't exist. And it shows up for you. This is, this is an amazing power dynamic story at play. And in, in, in this way... Finally, God shows up in a, in a dynamic way, in a visible way, and the story begins to shift right here. The reason the Jewish people existed is that we, we, this is, when it comes to this part of the story, they begin to relax. This is where we know God cares for us. This is where, if this was a movie, the soundtrack begins to change. This is where Neo figures out he can control bullets, right? This is important. And then the question becomes, well, why now? Why would he do it in this moment and not previously? I mean, after all, there have been other places in the narrative. Prior to this one, we might have expected him to intervene. Surely, dead babies in the Nile would be a good place to start. Feels like you missed an opportunity there to kind of step in. But God comes into the story at this point to deliver his people because it is for them, exactly at this point, they begin to groan in their slavery, cry out for help, and, and ask for deliverance in this way. So for the Jewish people, they believed God responded in this, not out of pity, not because he saw uh, uh, somebody um, getting unjustly treated. Unjustly treatment in the ancient world, like that was wherever you looked. This was essentially them saying, God made a promise and he came through on his promise to us. We are a people of the promise. God did this out of justice to set things right for a people that he said he would set things right. Why he made those promises is a topic for another time in another series. And why he acts now is not, again, simply because he feels sorry for them, nor because he takes pity on them, nor even solely because he necessarily likes or even loves them. He would say the motivation is these are my people. These, I don't even like them, but these are the people that I chose, right? You get sort of that sense. It's his justice and not simply his charity, although perhaps charity is undoubtedly involved. I made a promise and I never go back on my promises. And when you've been on the raw end of injustice for that length of time, perhaps love takes the form of justice and setting things right, a righting of wrongs or setting free or a new beginning. 
This is where the story diverges a little bit. Yes, Jesus is very much like Moses. Yes, our situation is a lot like that. But when John sits down to write his version of how do we make sense of Jesus' life, he records for us, and I'm closing with this. This is our last passage together. A story of one of the Pharisees, one of the religious leaders, approaching Jesus at night. His name is Nicodemus. And he's probably afraid to go in the daytime because afraid, he's afraid of like public humiliation or doesn't want to be publicly identified with him. And later he will after his death, but in, in this part of the story, he's kind of like testing the waters. Like, you're interesting to me. You're intriguing. I have questions, but I don't want like, other people to know I have questions. I have a lot to lose here. Uh, in, in the same way, uh, for a lot of us, um, we've heard the story of Jesus, or you're watching this or whatever, or, you know, you're not really, I, you don't personally identify as a Christian, but you're like, um, this isn't, you know, Jesus, you sound like an interesting guy. I'm just not sure how much I want to sign on to this. I have a lot to lose. Uh, or, or uh, you know, and you don't, but it's fine. It's, um, it's, it's this question of like, what, what do we do with this Jesus character? So Nicodemus is there and he's asking him a question under the shroud of darkness. And he comes to him at night and he asks him, or doesn't even ask him a question. That's the funny part. I think he just makes the statement, rabbi, teacher, we know, we know, not even identifying like his own personal thing. He's like trying to kind of cloud it in like this common, yeah, we, we think. Um, we know that you are a teacher, come from God. For no one can do these things or these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him. Not that this was a question. He's just making a statement, right? And Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I tell you, unless one uh, is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. To which then Nicodemus goes into this like joking manner of born again, like I gotta go find my mom again. This is gonna be a little awkward. You know what I mean? Uh, I don't know if I can sign up for anything like that. And then Jesus answers him in this new way of of talking about what it means to be born again and this renewal of our minds and this renewal piece. And then the most like super incredibly powerful and very, very different from the story of Exodus where God acted because he needed to, because he had to, because of contractual obligation. John records for us, now God acted. He showed up after a long period of like, we're not sure if God is still with us. In the same way that the Hebrew people went into 400 years of slavery and go, is, is God really with us? The Jewish people went into exile, came back from exile, and now it's been periods of silence and now Rome is oppressing them and they're going, they're asking the same exact question. Is, was God really, is that, was that just a bunch of stories from like the past that don't mean anything? Was this, I mean, is that really about us? Is there a God that really cares about us in this way? And then this thing happens, this conversation with Nicodemus happens, and the interpretation that John records for us, for his audience who are reading this, who are trying to figure out and make sense of Jesus and what Easter means to them, says this about Jesus in this moment. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. You've seen this verse, the common verse that's on you know, football stadiums everywhere, right? But the, what was the motivation for doing this? His motivation was not out of an obligation from a covenantal relationship necessarily. What John said, the motivation that we saw is a God who loves. He didn't do it out of pity, but he did it out of love for us, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Remember, this is not Jesus saying this to Nicodemus. This is John's interpretation of this verse or of, of, of this story. John is offering his kind of theology 40, 50, 60 years after this conversation with Nicodemus took place, going, what I saw was a man who cared about them and did this out of love, who was sent by a God who loved, to provide, to, to, who loved us to provide a way of, again, preservation from death, preservation from the powers of sin, and something different. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. 
There is a lot of Moses in Jesus. There is a lot of similarities, is what they would say. You should definitely read through the Exodus story and have that inform what we see about Jesus. Absolutely, he was a threat to the establishment. Absolutely, he had this reversal of expectations with all of this. And absolutely, he was concerned for justice, even at the personal expense of himself. For people who looked nothing like him, who, as Paul would say, even hated him. He loved us before we could even love him. He operated not as a response to us, but out of his love for us. But one distinct thing to note is in this new version of it, God did not do this out of pity, out of sympathy, out of obligation to a contractual relationship. He operated out of love. And so for us, as we read this and as we, as we go next week and we experience this Easter story and, and, and receive communion at home together or, or just remember the, the Easter story, we remember it ultimately not out of this is what naturally had to take place, this is what did. He, this is an expression of love. This is God showing us in the darkness. You never have to question anymore how I stand with you. The reason that Easter exists is because of the fact that he loved the entire world so much that he sent his son. To miss that at Easter, to miss the uniqueness of Jesus' coming in this way, to say, well, yeah, it just feels like we're a people group and we kind of deserve this and this is what happens. No, 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 this was not, this is above and beyond that. Easter reminds us that there is a God who loved us so much that he sent his son to welcome us into a new reality, to introduce a new kingdom, a new way of doing life, to preserve us from the power of sin and death and to offer us a new way forward in this way. Yes, a new and better Moses. And next week, we get to talk through that exodus, that movement away from that and what into this new world means. And I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope that you'll come back and watch and be a part of next week as we finish off Exodus a look at understanding or making sense of Easter. Let's pray. Father, our prayer this week is that somehow, uh, whether you know, we're going to read stories, we're going to hear things, it's Easter, so it's like pretty common for us to kind of hear about this Jesus story or, or, or see this. I pray that as we see it this week, we would see it and, and, and look at it through the lens of thank, thank you for being a God who loves so much that he sent. Thank you for being a God who loves so much that he sent, for, even for somebody like me. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like in our life and what that, how that resonates within us in the Curse Act on your name. Amen.